0: Welcome, listeners, to episode 47 of the Odd Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle, and I'm here in what's we're calling right now Vomitorium West uh, with my good friend, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling tonight, Dave?
1: I'm doing pretty well, Jeff. Thank you so much for asking. Vomitorium West, we changed locations recently.
0: We did, right? Moved
1: a couple miles across town.
0: Yep. Two more uh, permanent digs here.
1: Yes, a place where we can set up the the lighting in the studio and so forth. We got the set built. Mm -hmm. We're getting through some of the hiccups, some of the rehearsals. It's just been grueling, right? These nine to five rehearsals. Oh, it's
0: it's brutal. The dance routines and the choreography. The makeup. Oh Oh, My goodness, the makeup.
1: Yeah, what is pancake anyway?
0: But we're not quite ready to offer that. No, uh, that stunning visual experience, which right. is, is uh, it's around the corner. We
1: hope it's around the corner. Yeah. Absolutely, Jeff. I think we got a shout out to do tonight, don't we?
0: We do. The, uh, tonight's shout out goes to uh, Graham Weber. Yeah, is, Mr. Weber gave us a lot of information. He did a lot of, uh, and uh, we just don't have time to pack it all in. here. No,
1: but, no. But uh, he lives in Southern Illinois in a place called Waterloo.
0: Yeah, that, well, that's a name that has carries a lot of historic weight. It to does. Us. Yes. Yeah,
1: I don't know if the people who live there feel that way. If they. They walk around thinking of Napoleonic intrusions and things like that.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yes, he comes from Southern Illinois. He's, he's about to be uh, a new father. Yes. Isn't
1: a, that amazing? A daughter on the way. Right. An occupational safety specialist.
0: Yes. Um, but a lover of, of things classical, of things biblical. Um, he's been an added listener for uh, for quite some time. Uh, he's. He also told us that he has this strange um, uh, post-COVID should, should, condition. Should we go into his medical history? No, on I There, found this, I found this really interesting. <laughs> okay, but, well, but
1: it has a is a Greek word. That's right?
0: what that's what really drew, drew to me. But he's yeah. he's suffering from uh, parosmia. Parosmia, which means he can't smell. He can't like stand the ser- smell of certain things. He'd be right?
1: perfect for the vomitorium. <laughs>
0: exactly right. So he he says he can't he can't uh, smell or drink coffee. Right. Since that, but yeah. something
1: along the lines of what does he say here? Uh, if I could drink coffee, I would,
0: something like that. You You're both right.
1: make me wish I could drink coffee.
0: That's right. It's those it's those, uh, those, ads, those wonderful yeah. ads that we, we yeah, do. Yeah, absolutely. We, and then he pays <laughs>
1: us this really sweet compliment. Uh, what does he say here? Your insightful commentary, witty banter. He's talking about you, Winkle. Mm. Deep knowledge and command of the classical languages are an inspiration to me as an inspiring teacher of biblical and classical literature. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you, Graham, for listening. Yeah, we'd like to say, Graham, you inspire us. Absolutely. You're out yes. there carrying the torch, interested in these things, uh, you and people like you. Are what keep this project going. Very, we're very, very true. Very yeah. grateful.
0: Yes. All right, Dave. Tonight we're talking about Gorgias. Yes, we are. Why are we talking about Gorgias? Uh,
1: well, why not? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk about his encomium of Helen. Right. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Gorgias, the fifth century sophist. We're going to give you a little bit of a background on who he was and why he matters, but just as a as a lead in. He wrote this piece, uh, something he calls his joke, on the character of Helen from the Iliad and the Odyssey. Yeah. And uh, he's going to defend her against all the detractors.
0: Right, right. Now, my sense of of Gorgias is... Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that a lot of people take find him very difficult to interpret? And definitely. And what we have of him is what isn't a joke.
1: Correct. Right. It's all quite fragmentary, but we're going to go through a little bit of the fragments. We're going to talk a little bit about his philosophy, about sophism in general. Mm-hmm. We're going to look at um, his appearance in the Platonic dialogue that bears his name, yes, the Gorgias, and eventually we'll get around to the work itself, his defense of Helen. Talk a little bit about uh, translation techniques and uh, all the the poor work I did 20 years ago. (laughs) Translation ease.
0: Right. And we're also going to get into maybe some ancient standards of beauty. Correct. Aesthetics. uh, What makes a person beautiful. Right. Right. Excellent. Well, you've got, I believe you've got an opening quote for us.
1: I do. This comes from our good friend H.J. Rose. I call him our good friend, but actually he's been deceased for a very long time which means his work is in the public domain, Mm. and it also is of very high quality. So here we go. This is from his Handbook of Greek Literature. First came out in 1934. This is page 279. He says, quote, After the downfall of the great tyrants, especially those of Syracuse, and the establishment of democracies in the island, there was an urgent demand for the art which claimed to manufacture persuasion, Demi Demiragos and thus to sway assemblies and law courts, a great figure soon arose in the person of Gorgias of Leontini, the famous sophist who lived through most of the fifth century. In accordance with his own despair of positive knowledge, he naturally devoted much attention to that substitute for it which might be practically useful, and began regularly to study and apply the means by which prose may be made impressive and interesting while retaining its own character." Just to pause a minute, Jeff, Mm -hmm. we'd like that guy on the program, wouldn't we? (laughs) (laughs) Make make prose impressive and interesting. Definitely. Retaining its own character. Yes. Uh, So to continue here, his chief contribution was the so-called Gorgian figures, schemata. In other words, an elaborate arrangement of thought and language alike in a series of effective antitheses elaborately worked out to give a rhythmical effect by the pairing of clauses, often rhyming, of the same length
0: interesting interesting so he he had rhythm and rhyme yes exactly wow, okay and
1: prior to this up to this point everything meaningful and we've talked about this before on the on the show everything meaningful was said in verse in poetry
0: yes right
1: now when suddenly the tyrants uh, the age of the tyrants is done democracy is on the rise Rose says there became a need for persons who could speak with persuasion and influence right Gorgias fills that need by coming up with these elaborate schemas figures of speech.
0: Yes. And as I understand it, he, um, he ultimately makes his way from Sicily to Athens. That's right. Um, as Probably as part of a delegation to ask for Athenian help against um, troubles. Yes. That happened home.
1: in 427.
0: Where, where, by which time he was a fairly old man already, or he was in his yes, 60s Yes. I think he was in his 50s or 60s. Uh-huh.
1: So little is known of him actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the best resources for him is a collection of fragments, right? Uh, Die Fragmente der Forsokratiker is uh, how it goes in the German, the fragments of the pre-Socratics, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone who comes before Socrates uh, by convention is called a pre-Socratic, especially in philosophy. And a man named uh, Hermann Diels, right? A good German name. Hermann. Yes. In uh, 1902, he first published his collection of fragments of these pre-Socratic philosophers.
0: Okay. And this is is the, the source from which we know pretty much most of what we know about Gorgias, aside from the Platonic dialogue? Yes, exactly. So he
1: has gone through all of the different quotations from Cicero, Plato, any any place where one of these gentlemen is mentioned, and he has uh, assembled together all of the fragments, critically reviewed them, written a lot of commentary about them in German. It's all available in uh, public domain. I spent a little time today reviewing, refreshing my knowledge um, of this particular author and mm-hmm. uh, of what he gives us on Gorgias.
0: Yeah. And you did some translating um, back in the day. I don't think we could call it that. We can't?
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I took one of the fragments. Uh, okay. That is the Encomium of Helen. Yep. And I rendered it into very workable, if uh, clunky English. Okay. And we'll take a little uh, look at that later in the program. Okay, looking forward to it. Yeah. All right. So where do we go from here? Well, we need to uh, talk a little bit about Gorgias' philosophy.
0: Okay. In, in as much as we can even know that.
1: Right. Exactly. It's all very fragmentary. But again, Deals has put a lot of these fragments together for us.
0: Okay. So now my sense is, I don't claim to be an expert on Gorgias or the pre-Socratics in any sense. My sense, and from what I learned, was Gorgias was in, in many ways considered maybe just shy of being a, a charlatan.
1: Yes, that's definitely the way that Plato presents him.
0: So he he's this he's a he's a guy who would go around and he could he would argue anything. He would get a display of uh, of learning of persuasion for money. Um, I think tradition says that he would hang out at at uh, sanctuaries like Olympia and Delphi. It's kind of a sideshow to what was going on, and, right? And he'd put the hat down. He's like a like a guy busking in a subway station. That's not far from it, okay? And uh, but uh, in terms of grounded in any kind of kind of rooted philosophy, he was more kind of a, a nihilist someone who yes. didn't, who didn't who didn't have kind of a bedrock of, of truth that he rested his arguments yes. on. Yeah. That's
1: definitely the way that Plato presents him. Okay. Although in the Gorgias as we'll talk about a little bit later that that again the dialogue that bears his name uh Socrates or Plato is fairly congenial toward him. He's kind of the The old man who has lived past his prime and he deserves respect for his accomplishments as a stylist, even if it turns out his epistemology, his convictions are pretty bankrupt and hollow.
0: Okay, okay. And
1: Socrates' main criticism of Gorgias and those who follow his school is that they teach for money.
0: Oh, okay. All right. If you
1: teach for money, it corrupts you. Yes. It's okay to get money from your students, but they should give it up willingly after you uh, give them the instruction. I see. There shouldn't be an invoice, no bill at the end. Right, right. So they listen to you and then they say, oh, well, that was a pretty good lesson. I'm going to give you some money. Okay. But that's not your motive for doing it, according to Socrates, and Gorgias charges people up front. Oh, okay. Without respect for truth.
0: It, okay, so, but the money thing is the one, is the thing that bothers Socrates the most. It's, it's well
1: that and the pretense of knowledge. Okay. Because as Socrates will drill down with these various sophists in the elenchus, right the the refutational mode of conversation, he'll find out they really don't know anything. Mm-hmm. It's all a clever disguise. Right, right. They are right. using words to obfuscate and to eschew knowledge, to throw <laughs> dust in people's faces, rather than to elucidate and explain yes. uh, what the content of knowledge really is.
0: Right. So Socrates, um, he, he like so many others, he makes Gorgias look like a fool.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. But he's more gentle with Gorgias than the other individuals in that dialogue. So okay. eventually, we've gotten some requests for this, and I, I like the requests. Eventually, we're going to have to deal at greater length with some of the uh, Socratic dialogues. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: But um, this is quite interesting. This comes to us from uh, Rose once again, and he's quoting uh, Deals, Fragment 3, and he says, quote, that Gorgias taught that nothing exists. So that's the first principle, nothing exists. All right. Or if it exists, okay, so maybe something does exist, it cannot be comprehended. So you can't really understand it. Or here's the third principle. If it exists, if it can be comprehended, it cannot be communicated. Mm. So this is a thorough kind of nihilism. It is. Or a deep skepticism at the very least.
0: You know, it is, you know, it, at a glance, it sounds like to me like that we all knew this guy, the guy who takes the one philosophy exactly. class. Exactly. Right? He corners you in the dorm <laughs> lobby. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Guess and, what I learned today? Sit down for
1: a few hours and I'll tell you.
0: Right. And he's there with his beret. Right. And his cigarette. Right. And he's going to tell you that- they, uh, You smoked in the dorm lobby? Th- that's, we're not talking about me. Oh, okay. Right. But he's, he's going he's gonna to convince you- that all is meaningless. Exactly. Right. But so I, so what do you do with that? I, mean, I don't do,
1: know. Yeah, I don't. it's clever. Nothing exists. Now, it seems to me that something exists. All right. Well, well, if maybe it ex- maybe it exists, but can you really understand it? Well, that's a little more plausible. Yeah. And it seems to me self-evident that something exists. Yes. We don't want to get into Cartesian waters here, but it seems self-evident that something exists. Right. But maybe we can't understand it completely. Then he retreats. All right. Perhaps. There is an object of knowledge that can be understood completely, but if so, you cannot communicate it. You can't impart that knowledge from one person to the next, which makes the whole premise of a podcast kind of meaningless, doesn't it? it? Exactly. <laughs> I and mean, what it makes the
0: whole premise of Gorgias is saying anything to anyone kind of mean kind of purpose. Well, I agree,
1: right? unless his purpose is to simply earn money. Yeah. So when he came to Athens in 427, that's the traditional date attached to his visit. It's uh, not long after the plague. I believe it's 427. Yep. And um, he scandalized, right? He scandalized the citizens of Athens because his big claim was, I can answer any question on any topic to everyone's satisfaction.
0: Hmm. He, he went down to the Agora, right? Stood up on a box,
1: exactly, and just
0: and announced this. Yep, and 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 an old milk
1: crate, right? And said, uh, "Ask me any question; I'll give you an answer to
0: that question,
1: uh, to everyone's satisfaction."
0: Now this seems really bold from a guy right off the boat in the Piraeus to come <laughs> into this brand new town. And he's supposed to be part of a, kind of a delegation asking for help, and here he is.
1: Well, his reputation had preceded him. Okay. And the interesting um, aspect of his skill is that he wasn't claiming an encyclopedic knowledge. It's not as though he knew everything about the world such that he could really produce the answer on the spot. Yeah. What he was claiming was consummate rhetorical skill. I may not know everything, but when I'm done talking, you won't really care, because I will have pleasingly persuaded you, that you got your answer.
0: Interesting. I mean, in a way that kind of fits with, I mean, if we can think of him as a nihilist, he's, I think that supports what he's arguing there. That right. I can convince you uh, that you've heard something that you believe is true, right. when in fact there's nothing underneath
1: it. Not really possible. Yeah. But I can convince you of it. Interesting, yeah. So not, not too long after that, I guess it's about 200 years, uh, one of his philosophical descendants, a man named Carneades, uh, who was um, a skeptic, he, he journeyed from Greece to Rome and um, engaged in a similar kind of exercise in which he spoke in the Senate. And on uh, the first day, he argued in favor of proposition A. Mm-hmm. Everyone was completely persuaded it was true. On the next day, the very next day, he argued against proposition A. It's opposite. Yeah, and everyone was persuaded it was true.
0: <laughs> Why they let that guy in there? And they
1: really, he really made them angry. <laughs> I bet they did. Because this is this is not how Romans, you know, conduct politics. Right, right, right. But the spirit of sophism, and now we're getting into something that. Um, is your area of expertise the spirit of sophism continued on through antiquity eventually uh, coming to what's called the second sophistic
0: right 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 and um but my sense that by the time you get to the second sophistic it's 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 gotten away from kind of the sophism the fifth century sophism that we're i think we're talking about today it's become more it, it's more kind of elaborate it's, it's more kind of inhabits more corners of the arts and uh, of music and kind of a display of learning, mm-hmm. um, but I, I think by the time you get to the term second sophistic, I think it's kind of lost that cynicism. So that's the is that the end of the second century? Yeah, AD
1: say the one eighties of Septimius Severus and and that, that era,
0: that era, or even a little earlier. I mean, I think it's also kind of coincides with with kind of you know Gibbon's notion of. The happiest time in human history, you know, the, mm. the five good emperors, right? So when and when I hear the term second sophistic, I hear it as kind of oh, this is a kind of little mini renaissance. So it's a
1: revival more of oratorical skill, skill than of uh, epistemological commitment.
0: Right, right, right. So when we talk about the sophistry of the, the fifth century, I always associate that with kind of this 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 emptiness, kind of a, a skill, like you said, to make money, to uh, hoodwink people. Uh, just to impress people, but grounded in nothing.
1: Mm-hmm. So in um in Rose on that same page 279, we have uh, here what he calls, quote, a short example imitated from Gorgias's funeral oration delivered or professing to be delivered over the Athenian dead. And he says it will give some idea of his manner. Jeff, you want to you
0: want to read that? Yeah. It's, sure. it's quite delightful. Sure. Um the quote goes something like this servants of the undeservedly unfortunate Punishers of the undeservedly fortunate, advantageously of bold intent, in fit season ready to relent, by the mind's prudence overcoming valor's rudeness, froward toward the froward, uh, sorry, froward against the froward, gentle to the gentle, fearless against the fearless, dread in the hour of dread. Yeah. So it's kind of like a bad rap, isn't it? It is. (laughs) Exactly. I'm not
1: much of a connoisseur of the genre. Of rap, but if I were, this would rank pretty low. I think.
0: Well, I'd have to. I'd have to hear it with a with a, a beat behind it. Okay. It, it could be. It could be a little old school. Servants
1: of the undeservedly unfortunate, punishers of the undeservedly fortunate. You're gonna do the beatbox. <laughs> <laughs> Advantageously of bold intent, infant season, ready to relent by the mind's prudence overcoming valor's rudeness. <laughs> froward against the froward, gentle to the gentle.
0: I'm, I was feeling it. I was fe- I was feeling it, then that, that, that I lost it. Yeah. I yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, have some good beatbox. Is that what we call that?
0: <laughs> That's something else.
1: Yeah. You should see his parachute pants. <laughs> Rose, Rose goes on to say, this would very soon Paul, either on a modern or on Greeks of the time of Demosthenes. Hmm. So I'm not sure what Paul means. I thought it was a type of cigarette, actually. <laughs> Palm Hall. Right. But I think what he's saying is that this cliche um, effect-driven rhetoric mm-hmm. would look stupid by the time of Demosthenes.
0: So it didn't age
1: well. No. So right. that's about, I don't know, the 340s, Yeah, uh, the three the 340s, 350s BC. Yes. So what, a hundred and... No, I guess about
0: 80 years later is all. Yeah.
1: By that time, it hadn't aged well, like you say. Interesting. And that modern audiences don't like it either.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it kind of... I think there's a modern corollary where... I mean, there was a while back when like having a rap in like an, an advertisement oh. was hit for maybe like a month. And now it's just... When anybody goes... It's it's become kind of a cliche-written... Yeah. yeah.
1: I think we can trace it back even uh, further. We can trace it back to the Kennedy administration. That far? Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That's kind of Gorgian. It is a Gorgianic device. That's very true. Absolutely. Right, right, right. And uh, it has... To my mind, it has the appearance of wisdom, it sounds so clever, but it, it leaves me kind of hollow. Yeah. I, I don't like speaking in cliches. Yeah, no, I hear you. I have a really visceral reaction to it, in fact.
0: Mm. This reminds me of, of a grad school exam I took long ago, and I was asked to comment. I don't even remember what was coming on some lines of Greek poetry, mm-hmm. and I was coming up short with what to say about them.
1: So you, you composed a rap?
0: <laughs> I, I, that probably would have been better. Uh, but I noticed that a couple of the lines, you read them in Greek, they rhymed. Yeah. So I, I commented on that. Uh. And, the, and the professor wrote back, I, I'll, I can still see it. He says, <laughs> uh, he says, the Greeks were interested in rhythm, not rhyming. <laughs> and that was it. So, But Gorgias, was, he, liked so he liked to rhyme. Yeah, he liked to throw it down.
1: Interesting. Uh, rhyme occurs, here's another quote from our, our friend Rose. Rhyme is rare in verse, mm. but characteristic of prose in antiquity.
0: I I had never right. I, I would love so to if, see more examples. If you're going to write
1: prose, it, it's okay to rhyme things from time to time.
0: Interesting, but never
1: in poetry. Not yeah. in an inflected language, because you could have a thousand line poem where every line ends in a you know the genitive singular ooh, right? <laughs> right. You'd get a little bit tiresome. <laughs> right, 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 right. But when Gorgias used it, says Rose, it had the charm of novelty. Novelty. People said, "Wow, that that Gorgias, he can throw down."
0: Man, he's hip. Exactly. Yeah, but it didn't last.
1: All right, so now we move on to Plato's characterization of Gorgias. We're going to take that from the dialogue of the same name, what's called one of the middle dialogues.
0: Okay. And how, how are we going to do that? So, Do I get to do voices? <laughs>
1: We're going to use the, uh, the translation that Hackett okay. generously provided for us, the one by Donald J. Zyle, 1987. And here we have three characters, actually. We have Socrates, Cairofon, and Gorgias. And uh, Chirophon is kind of Socrates' lackey, if you remember.
0: Right, he's, Chirophon. He's the guy who who is said to have gone to the the oracle. That's right. And asked kind of the mirror, mirror on the wall. Right. Who's uh, the
1: wisest of them all?
0: Right. And the, or, the oracle gave a very straightforward answer: Socrates of Athens.
1: That's right. And, and he so, comes.
0: He comes back. He tells Socrates what he heard, and it's like, how can this be?
1: Socrates but, says, No way. But who
0: am I to doubt the god? And so this this is the this is the catalyst for his career. Definitely. Right. The same guy here. Same guy. Okay. That's Chirophon, mm-hmm. right
1: So uh which which voice do you wanna read? We're gonna need going to need three voices here. We need Socrates, we need Chirophon, and then we need Gorgias. Well there's himself. also a
0: Callicles here. Do we, well, do but we Calicles Callicles
1: have... comes in a little bit later? Okay. I don't I don't think we're gonna deal with him.
0: Okay, so where are we starting here? We're gonna
1: start uh where Socrates says, um, an excellent idea. Ask him Chirophon.
0: Okay. Do you wanna be I you wanna be Socrates? Can I you? be Socrates? You can okay, I'll be Chirophon. All right.
1: Yeah. And who's gonna be Gorgias? Shall we arm wrestle? Um
0: Let's, uh, let's see. I guess you're going to be Gorgias because I'm going to be Chirophon. So to flow, you're going to have to all take right. that role. All,
1: all right. right. All right. You set this up.
0: You, no, can, you <laughs> get all the good lines. No, That's no. Right. It's all right. It's all right.
1: Socrates says, Should I use like a faux British accent? <laughs> An that, excellent idea. So
0: BBC production, right. Oh,
1: no. An excellent idea. Ask him, Chirophon. Ask him what? What he is. What do you mean? Well, if he were a maker of shoes, he'd
0: answer that he was a cobbler, wouldn't he? Or don't you see what I mean? I do. I'll ask him. Tell me, Gorgias, is Calicles right in saying that you make claims about answering any question anyone might put to you?
1: He is, Kairophon. In fact, I just now made that very claim, and I say that no one has asked me anything new in many a
0: year. Okay, so we've, he's established that claim that you were just talking about. Right. He can answer anything anyone asks him. And then let's pick up the dialogue a little bit later uh, in, the, in the piece.
1: Okay, and I'll read Gorgias, you read Socrates, right? Excellent. That's exactly the claim I make, not only here, but elsewhere too.
0: Well, now, Gorgias, would you be willing to complete the discussion in the way we're having it right now, that of alternately asking questions and answering them, and to put aside for another time this long style of speech-making like the one Paulus began with? Please don't go back on your promise, but be willing to give a brief answer to what you're asked.
1: There are some answers, Socrates, that must be given by way of long speeches. Even so, I'll try to be as brief as possible. This too, in fact, is one of my claims. There's no one who can say the same
0: things more briefly than I. That's what we need, Gorgias. Do give me a presentation of this very thing, the short style of speech, and leave the long style for some other time.
1: Very well, I'll do that. You'll say you've never heard anyone make shorter speeches.
0: Come then. You claim to be an expert in the craft of oratory and to be able to make someone else an orator, too. With which of the things there are is oratory concerned? Weaving, for example, is concerned with the production of clothes, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and so, too, music is concerned with the composition of tunes. Yes. By hera, Gorgias, I do like your answers. They couldn't be shorter.
1: Yes, Socrates. I dare say I'm doing it quite nicely. <laughs>
0: And so you are. Come and answer me then that way about oratory too. About which of the of the things there are, is it expertise?
1: About speeches.
0: What sort of speeches, Gorgias? Those that explain how sick people should be treated to get well?
1: No. <laughs> He's <laughs> something, isn't he?
0: He's something. Man, those, yeah. are, some, those are some short speeches they right are there. Short
1: speeches. And of course, they're even shorter <laughs> in Greek because, well, I don't know if they're shorter, but they're also monosyllables, right? right? Nigh. nay, Nigh. Nigh. Ooh, ooh, nigh. <laughs> also <laughs> monosyllables.
0: <laughs> and so,
1: of course, Plato, you know, brilliant, brilliant dramatist and uh, captures the essence of these uh, individuals. You may remember back when we uh, did the episode Helloari Libris, yes. gorging on books, yeah, yeah, number yeah. 13 or something like that. right? I read from a little bit of Gorgias, I read the speech of Polis, which is from just about this area, where Polis, whose name, you know, you mentioned, uh, is... The lackey of Gorgias, like Chirophon, is Plato's lackey. Ah, uh, okay. And Polis gives that speech about there are many kinds of skills among skillful people who skillfully use their skills. And it was Plato mocking the Gorgionic style yeah. in the mouth of this, you know, this suck up.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. But I love Gorgias. Just, hey, nobody, nobody's more brief than me. That's right. Oh. I can answer any
1: question and I can use fewer words. <laughs> no. Yes.
0: I'm warming up to him. Are you liking yeah, them a little bit? Them a bit more? Once now. you
1: get past the the nihilism,
0: you know, <laughs> right. The clipped monosyllables are you know, they're appealing. That's right. It's I think it's it's hard to be a fun nihilist. Oh yeah. But maybe Gorgias is the one guy who did it. Yeah. So Jeff,
1: what are we looking at after the break?
0: After the break, we're gonna get into some. Uh, we're gonna get into the encomium. The of encomium Helen. itself. Yes. Is Helen guilty? Is she innocent? We're gonna find out.
1: This episode is brought to you by Ad Astra Coffee Roasters of Hillsdale, Michigan. Patrick Whalen and his team are roasting some delicious beans just for you.
0: Yes, I love their Teningo. I love the tenebris.
1: You stole the Tenango at the start, oh, I, didn't I you? I jumped on it because you <laughs> left, left an
0: opening. But whatever they're doing on that repurposed uh, bed roaster there in yes. Hillsdale, they're doing it right.
1: Yes, beans uh, rated 80% or better on the coffee scale. Delivered to your door. Jeff, there's a coupon code, right, that our listeners can use? Yes.
0: If they go to adostraroasters.com and enter A-N-A-A in the coupon code, they get 10% off anything they order.
1: That's right. nauseum odd Astra,
0: A-N-A-A. Yes. Check it out. This episode of Nauseum also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. For 40 years, plus now, Hackett Publishing, based in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, and Cambridge, have been... Uh, putting out quality, high quality, affordable translations of classical works, as well as works from across many academic disciplines. I love their stuff. I've used their stuff. Dave, what do you like about Hackett?
1: Well, we were just reading from the Donald Zile translation of the Gorgias, right. 1987. I think, that's, uh, that's going uh, more than 30 years now. Mm-hmm. And that translation is as precise and fresh as when it first came out. I really like it. It was great. And uh, Hackett has a wide range of excellent products and they have been generous sponsors of this podcast from the very beginning that tells you something it does doesn't it about a publisher that uh, of course they're in it to earn money to make money by selling their volumes but they're committed to the classics uh, more broadly I mean, and they took a
0: chance and a couple of they, chuckleheads you know, said, any idea what they were doing are we talking about here?
1: <laughs> so uh, listeners please go to hackettpublishing.com h-a-c-k-e-t-t we trust you can spell publishing come on uh, hackettpublishing.com Pick out the the text, the volumes that you'd like, and when you get to the coupon code and the checkout, what do they need to enter there?
0: They enter AN2021, and this is, this is phenomenal. They get 20% off. Wait, wait. Dramatic pause. They get- How much? 20% off. Wow. Not only that, but free shipping. Well. Free, shipping free shipping. Two dramatic pauses. That's right. Incredible. Check
1: it out. This episode of Ad Nauseam is also brought to you by Racial Coffee. Racial Coffee of Portland, Oregon. Mark Helwig and his team out there have solved all of your brew-based and your aesthetic difficulties. It's
0: very, very true. I've got the Ratio 6 machine. I believe you've got the Ratio 8. I've got the
1: 8. I used it just this morning. No joke. It's part of my morning ritual. Yeah. I wake up. I take the carafe. I rinse it out carefully. Now, the real coffee aficionados, they use only filtered water. Uh, I can't or distilled water. I'm not quite there yet.
0: Nor nor I. It yeah. doesn't
1: matter. It makes a delicious cup of coffee.
0: Do you ever? Do you ever make the coffee? Do you prepare it like the night before? So all in the oh, morning no. you, you just gotta hit the button. No, no, right. no.
1: You're a pl- you, you like
0: to plan ahead. I do like to plan ahead. No, I know. I think a, a true coffee aficionado would say, no, you gotta ground them. Right right before you brew it. Yeah,
1: I, right? I grind them right before I brew them in the morning. Yeah. Um, and I'm not even using a burr roaster. I probably should. You've heard about the burr roaster? Oh, I don't
0: even know what that is.
1: It's a, I don't know. It's the kind of roaster that gets in a duel with Alexander Hamilton. <laughs>
0: and and sh-
1: wins. Shoots him before the coffee comes. No, no. It's, I don't <laughs> use the burr roaster, but um, I just use the old fashioned, you know, whirly gig thing that yeah. smacks him around. That's what I got Still to. makes a delicious cup of coffee. I grind them in the morning. Put them in the cone. The water comes up through the metallic veins down through the- Fibonacci head. Fibonacci shower head. Yes. We've done this before, haven't we? (laughs) And then down into the carafe, which you have likened to a- um plutonium transport device? Something like that.
0: Yeah. That thing is solid, It's straight it? out of the Marvel Universe. Exactly. Point, right? But Dave, if, if our listeners want to participate in this and get the Ratio 6 machine What do you mean if? It, when okay. they want it on their right. countertop, what do they have to do? They
1: need to go to RatioCoffee.com, mm. R-A-T-I-O-Coffee.com. Another Latin word's tucked in there very yeah, nicely. I like it. RatioCoffee.com. check out the Ratio 6, and if they enter coupon code ANCO, they're going to get 15% off this fabulous coffee machine. Now, I just got to say, I know we're going a little long on the ads, but... But really, listeners, if you buy another one of those coffee machines from a competitor that's made out of squirty plastic, you put that on your countertop, you're going to regret it Big eventually. Time. I'm telling you, you could go through a dozen of those yeah. probably, and you will, for the price of one of these nice machines.
0: Right. It's a work of art. You won't regret it. All right, as we get back into it, we're going to dive into Gorgias' Encomium of Helen. That's correct. And we're going to get into your translation Oh yes, of the Encomium of Helen. Uh, but first, you're going to read us a little Greek. I
1: am, yes. Yeah. So here's the title. This, again, is from the Fragmenta Der Vorsacratiker put together for us by Hermann Diels, right, 100 years ago. See how good scholarship lasts? Yeah. People are still mining this stuff. So the title is Gorgiu Helenes Encomion, and he says, Cosmos pole, men ewandria, somati de kalos. Psuke de Sofia pragmati de arete, Logo de alethea, Ta de enantia tuton a cosmia. Andre de kaigunaika, kai logon, kae ergon, kae polen. Kae pragma chretomen. Axiona paenua paenoti man. To de enaxioi, moman epithenae.
0: Very nice. Is there some rhythm There's, in oh, that? oh, right? that was that was some Run DMC. <laughs> that was the the Sugar Hill Gang. I was Greek, hearing it there. Greek
1: this way. Yeah, Greek right? this
0: way. Yeah. No, I was hearing the I mean Greek is ancient Greek is such a musical language it anyway, is. but that was that was popping and stopping <laughs> even
1: without the oh, well, thanks. But <laughs> even without the the tonalities, right? It's supposed to be a tonal language. I'm supposed to be going up and down on the pitch. Cosmos bullet. Like that. (laughs) Right. Which which I'm not. Remember Rich Weavers used to do that a little bit? I did, yeah. Our former professor. I do, yeah. So what does this mean, Jeff? You're going to read a little bit?
0: Yeah. So this is your translation from 2000.
1: Yeah, I'm not very proud of it though.
0: Right, was this um, published? Was no, it? never published. This was just an exercise. So that? I
1: was I was teaching a rhetoric class. Okay. Uh, in my first job, uh, in Virginia, state of Virginia, mm-hmm. and this was one of the speech I, speeches I had the kids read as oh. an example of, I guess, how to to write a speech that has style but maybe no content. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, it's it's not easy to come by, so maybe I'll just translate it myself. I'm not very pleased with the final product.
0: Okay, well. Let's let our audience be the judges. All right. All right. As the adornment for a city is its courage, and for the body beauty, for the soul wisdom, and for an action excellence, so for a speech it is truth. But the opposites of these are disorder. Man and woman and word and deed in the city and in action, these are which are worthy of praise. It is necessary to honor with praise, but to lay blame upon the undeserving one. For the error and the ignorance of blaming the praiseworthy are equal to that of praising the blameworthy. Yeah. <laughs> you see that parallelism? I, I think,
1: I mean, it's not a very good translation, but it does capture some of that parallelism, right? Yeah. The error and ignorance of blaming the praiseworthy are equal to that of praising the blameworthy.
0: But, but I mean, is part of Gorgias' intent here is to kind of keep his audience off balance here. Is it, I mean, I suppose. Or just kind of to kind of wow them with the rhythm. Yes. Yes. And that's first of all, and what he's trying to say is secondary.
1: That's right. It's the combination of antithesis, right? Putting things in contrast, and then also parallelism. So you see the adornment for a city is its courage, for the body, beauty, for the soul, wisdom, all of these uh, connections, right? But then he says at the end of that first sentence, which may seem surprising for a nihilist,
0: so for a speech, it is truth. right. Right. Truth for a nihilist? So, again, if, if people, if his, if his reputation had preceded him, people have got to be thinking, okay, what is he up to? Right. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, I think that the second section here, right, the second section uh, gives us some indication about where Gorgias is heading. He says, it is the part of the same man both to say rightly what is required and to refute those who find fault with Helen.
0: So now he's getting down to his main subject This here. is the
1: subject. Okay. A woman concerning whom both the testimony of the poets and of their listeners is unanimous, and the reputation of whose name has become an everlasting memorial of hardships. Okay. Jeff, Jeff what do you think of when you hear the name Helen?
0: Well, I mean, I think of her more or less kind of how she appears in, in Homer's epics. Uh, in, in She has a, a role to play in both the Iliad and in the Odyssey. I, I mean, I've I've come across this idea that, you know, Helen for the Greeks was, um, you know, um, reviled mm-hmm. as, you know, causing all of this death and destruction. Does, um, doesn't
1: Homer call her Kuklops? No, not Kuklops. I'm sorry. Koonopes.
0: Kunopes, Dog-eyed. dog face, Dog-eyes. Right. But at the same time, I think, you know, in book three of the Iliad, um, I think we, as we talked about maybe in episode two of the podcast. Oh, really? Way back Way back in, then. Oh. Um Homer is very gentle with her. He has Priam, he calls her up to the to the battlements and mm-hmm. Priam asks her to identify these Greeks down there mm-hmm. below. And he even says, I don't blame you. Right. right. I blame the gods. Right. And it's Paris who comes off as the player, the, mm-hmm. the one who's to be um, reviled in, in that story.
1: Yeah, he's a lout. And of course, uh, Aphrodite whisks him off the battlefield right before Menelaus kills him. Right. And drops Paris in um, the bedroom chamber of Helen, where Helen again shows a certain amount of courage in saying, you're not half the man my husband actually is, right. Menelaus, It's a good thing that you got off the battlefield because he's the real, the real deal. He was gonna kill you. Mm-hmm. But then overcome by Aphrodite, right?, uh, she consummates her love with him.
0: right, 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 right. yeah. But I think it's still a, it's a far cry from what Gorgias is suggesting here. There's a unanimous hatred for Helen. Hmm. right. I mean, in the Odyssey, as we also talked about in this podcast, um, she comes off a little bit more crafty. Right, um, uh, witch-like, witch-like, right? exactly. She's spiking the drinks,
1: right? With her pharmaca, It seems like that's Odyssey four, right? She and uh, she and Menelaus are at home in Sparta. Mm-hmm. Telemachus, I don't remember who's the other guy, Nestor's son, uh,
0: uh, Pisistratus. So, yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah.
1: they come. They come there to Sparta, and Helen doesn't come off too good there. And she, she doesn't. She tells that crazy story about imitating the voices of the men's wives right. to try to draw them out of the horse, right? That's going to sack Troy. But Gorgias says she is a, a memorial, an everlasting memorial
0: of hardships. Hardships, yeah.
1: And then he goes on to say, but I myself desire, by offering a certain argument with logic, both to put an end to the charge made against this woman, wrongly slandered, and also to reveal her slanderers as liars and to demonstrate the truth, or we could say, editorializing at the very least, stop their ignorance.
0: Stop their ignorance. Okay.
1: So that's the theme, right, of this little encomium, right? This hymn of praise. Mm-hmm. Helen has been wrongly accused and he Gorgias is going to write this wrong.
0: Right. So now I'm imagining here this him performing this at at as you as the travelers are coming into Delphi. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, yeah, you put a little money in the basket, right, and I will argue against against something that Everybody believes.
1: Yes, since the time of Homer, this has been the name associated with the cause of the whole war.
0: Right, and I'm going to show you why you everybody's been wrong about this. Exactly. Okay. So yeah. that
1: takes some chutzpah, right? It does. Yeah, that takes a little moxie.
0: I'd, I'd stick around.
1: Yeah, I'd like to hear that, frankly. Yeah, all right. Okay, so now Jeff, Gorgias gives some
0: reasons as to why Helen is actually innocent. He does, and I think these are, are in, in some ways quite persuasive. Okay. And I at odds with a lot of... Um, uh, I think what is argued by lots of the the stories of mythology. So he says the first one. He says, if she was simply a victim of fate or the whims of the gods, we can't blame her. Hmm. She's a plaything. You know, uh, we've we've talked about on this podcast about how there's that that odd kind of paradox, like with. Actaeon stumbling upon Artemis as she's bathing. Yes. On the one hand, it seems so unjust that he's then, you know, he's dismembered. Yeah, that. he's
1: turned into a stag. Right. Story from Ovid and torn apart by dogs. Right.
0: But at the same time, there's this idea: well, because of the, the sacredness of the goddess, it doesn't matter right. why it happened or or the innocence of 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 the of the perpetrator. It's this uh, the god's sacredness has to be defended. Right. And here Gorgias seems to be saying, um, to my mind, is much more. Uh, strikes me as kind of contemporary, right? Um, you know, he says, "No, if 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 the gods did this, she cannot be blamed." Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe the ancient the, the view was, well, it can be both things. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So this line sums it up, I would say. If it happened for the first reason, right, by necessity, he deserves to be blamed. Who is blamed? That would be Paris. For it is not possible to prevent the will of the God by human forethought. It does not happen that the stronger is hindered by the weaker. The stronger here being the gods, but the weaker is ruled by the stronger and led, while both the stronger leads and the weaker follows. Right. There's a certain amount of rhetorical repetition there, but... That's what he's doing.
0: Right, right. And the second reason? The second reason he kind of applies the same logic to Paris's actions. He says, well, so if uh, first he says, if the gods had decided this, then how can we blame her? Right. Second is if he, if she was abducted by Paris, who is physically stronger uh, than her, um, he writes, you know, but if she was abducted violently and lawlessly, violated and illegally outraged, it is clear that the one who stole her so outrageously broke the law. But she who was stolen after being outraged is truly miserable. Hmm. So we can't blame her either if she was just carried off by Paris. Hmm. Hmm. So gods are to blame, Paris is to blame.
1: But either way, Helen, innocent. Innocent, yeah. And he says, therefore the barbarian, right, that's Paris, the barbarian who attempted a barbaric attempt in word and law and deed deserves to suffer censure in speech, punishment by law, and loss in livelihood. So, a high degree of parallelism in this rhetorical structure. Yes, always.
0: Right, and I think to some degree, I think Homer um, is nodding. I think he would agree with at least part two of that.
1: You mean the the notion that Helen is actually innocent because Paris did it against her will?
0: Yeah, and I'm just thinking of the way in which you know Homer depicts Paris. Um, it's like Homer said. So, yeah, okay, this guy, this guy has it coming.
1: Mm-hmm. Orlando Bloom. If we go back to oh,
0: that guy's got it coming.
1: What was a clunker episode, oh. wasn't
0: it? It's, it's. It, I think it's gaining steam. It had a nice title. Oh, the more bods than gods. More bods than gods. Well, listen, if you've missed that one, go check it out, please, please <laughs> Please check it out. pleading with you. So, what's <laughs> the third reason? Um, the third reason I believe is, uh, it's the power of love. Is the power of love or the power of speech? Power. Maybe it's the power of speech first. Yeah, right. The power of speech. Um. So he writes, but if speech was persuading and beguiling her mind, Helen's mind, it is not difficult to offer a defense in respect to this charge and to free her from blame in the following manner. Speech is a powerful force, which with the tiniest and most invisible form accomplishes the most astounding feats. Hmm. Now, here, Gorgias is, he's patting, he's patting, his own, patting his own, himself his own, on the, 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 the back. Like, he's saying, yeah, so, uh, I'm So what I do is so powerful right. that, you know... If I was trying to persuade Helen, you could not blame her.
1: Yeah, and what's worse than a self-referential, a self-referential, sly, self-congratulatory kind of idea, uh, you know, slipped into a public presentation like they do on podcasts? Yes.
0: <laughs> Don't you hate that? I hate that. I was with him when he was dropping his knives and his ooze. Right. But now, I know I know no. he's okay. lost me again.
1: Yeah. So he says it is able. It being speech, logos is able to check fear and to remove pain. To stimulate pleasure and amplify pity i will now demonstrate how these things happen it is necessary to demonstrate this for the listeners by proof so he's going to give then a demonstration oratorical demonstration of the power of words and if if helen were overcome by words
0: then it's not her fault it's, either it's not her fault
1: all right not it's, the gods right if the gods did it, it she's innocent if paris did it she's innocent
0: and if he was he persuaded her or somebody persuaded if her. If words did it. If words did it, she's innocent. She's innocent. So you
1: start to wonder, is there any way that anyone can be held responsible for any action?
0: <laughs> what's what's the fourth? Uh fourth, I believe, is is uh it's the power of love, as Huey Lewis sang okay. many years ago. Or Celine Dion. Did she sing that too? Yeah. Oh, okay. I was thinking of the one from Back to the Future.
1: Yes, I know that one.
0: Okay, yeah. Well, either one is uh also holds um uh Helen innocent.
1: Okay. I think, Jeff, though, but before we go on to she's innocent because love made her do it, okay. we need to talk about how words
0: are like drugs. Uh, oh, really? Yes. So he, so he, Gorgias goes on. He does. Okay.
1: <laughs> this is in section 14. All right. He says, but the power of speech relative to the disposition of the soul has the same rationale as the disposition of drugs relative to the nature of bodies. You following? <laughs> For just as different drugs pull from the body different fluids, that can be a mess. What's he talking about? And arrest the elements of disease or of life. Okay. So also some words soothe, some excite, some cause fear, others establish confidence in their listeners, and still others, persuasive words, intoxicate and bewitch the soul by a certain wickedness.
0: So he's got the the cure for what ails you. Exactly. He's like the 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 guy with the medicine, the medicine wagon, and right. what 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 do you need? It's got a thousand drawers, right. right? Each little
1: tiny drawer he pulls out, there is a word that is aimed at your need, your desire, your weakness. So language is like a drug. And this is interesting because of course, He's defending Helen. And what did we see Helen do in Odyssey Book 4? She was spiking drinks. She was putting drugs in drinks. Pharmaca. Pharmaca. Right? So throughout the Odyssey, we see that these powerful words, which Odysseus traffics in, they're like drugs. Yeah.
0: Right. Gorgias picks this up. He does. And um, probably not, a, not an accidental illusion.
1: No, I don't think so. Right. So... The fact that this is section 15, if she were persuaded by a speech, if Helen were persuaded by a speech, she did not commit an injustice, but suffered bad luck has been stated already. But now we go on to the fourth charge, right? And this right. is the one of love. So Jeff, can you explain that part to us?
0: Right. So uh, again, he, he kind of takes it uh, back to the gods once again, and that, that he, he talks about the power of, of Cupid or the power of Eros, and to fall under the spell of Eros, it's the whim of the gods once again. Uh, he writes in section 19, if therefore the eye of Helen was delighted by the body of Alexander, which is another name for Paris, and provoked in her soul a desire and struggle for love, what is so surprising about that? This love, if it is a god, has the divine power of the gods. How then could someone being weaker resist such a one and restrain the powerful? Hmm. So once so, again- If you're in love, you are out of
1: your mind, basically. You are a slave to love mm-hmm. and you cannot resist.
0: Right. This it kind of anticipates you know, the Cupid we see in Ovid mm-hmm. in the Apollo and Daphne story where he says, where Apollo mocks him and he's and Cupid's text back says basically, hold my beer right. and let me show you who's really in charge. Exactly. Right.
1: That, you said that's the Daphne story. Yes. Right. So he shoots Apollo with a gold-tipped arrow. Right. And he shoots Daphne with a leaden-tipped arrow. Right.
0: It makes them have the opposite effect. Right. Yeah.
1: It also anticipates, quite interestingly, it just occurs to me now, Augustinian psychology. Oh, how so? Well, because Augustine says, if you ask me why men sin, I'll say it's because they love to do so. Mm. But if you ask me why do they love to do so, he says, I have no answer. It's i'm out of my league there i'm out of my depth i don't know interesting so actions are driven by loves Mm. right yeah and uh in some sense you can't control how you respond in a given
0: situation you simply do
1: what you love or you become what you
0: love interesting interesting right right um he goes on he says um in that same passage but if it is a case of human weakness and the ignorance of the soul there ought to be no assigning of blame for wrongdoing, but instead a due consideration for her misfortune. Hold on now. So yes. We're supposed to feel sorry for Helen? Yes. She's she's in the throes of, of, of love. She's a victim. She's a victim. So
1: the gods made her do it. Mm-hmm. Paris made her do it against her will. Uh, rhetoric made her do it. Yes. Or love made her do it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And no matter which of the four is true... We should have mercy on her. her mercy. She's a, she is a victim. What do you think of that? Uh,
0: at you know, at uh, at worst, she's a victim of bad luck, as hmm. he puts it. Yeah. Hmm. He writes, "For she left when she left as the ransom of fate, not by the wishes of her will, and by the constraints of love, not by the preparations of design." Hmm. So she's not the 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 scheming mastermind. It wasn't her idea. Uh, she's just a plaything of the stronger. But
1: couldn't we turn this around and apply it to any given instance of human wrongdoing and exonerate the person? Well, I'm pretty sure Gorgias did that
0: in the next speech, which didn't survive.
1: Based on this fourfold argument? I mean, let's try Paris. Yeah. Right? Why did Paris kidnap Helen? You know, woman stealing is a bad thing. It's, It's condemned by the Greeks. Herodotus condemns it in his history. So Paris did it because the gods made him. I guess we can't say that he made himself, but... Maybe Helen's rhetoric compelled him, or maybe he just fell in love with her beauty. So who can blame him?
0: Right. Even if you think about the story of the Judgment of Paris, where he's got to decide who gets this apple, mm-hmm. right? And when he, the moment he is chosen to to answer that question, he's doomed. That's right. Because to please one goddess, you're going to anger two. Yes. He, he can't win.
1: Yes. That's the Casa's belly. So he chooses Aphrodite. Gives the stiff arm to what is it, Athena and, and Hera? Uh, right. Right. And so he's compelled. He's compelled, right?
0: And I think gregory said, said yes. Just stick around for my next speech.
1: Have you ever tried this in real life? You know, let's say you know you fail to do something you're supposed to do. Uh, Mrs. Winkle says to you, "Jeff, did you leave that lasagna on the counter?" Yeah. And you say, "Look, look." I say, "The gods made me do it."
0: Usually, I, I say, "The rhetoric made me do it." But uh... <laughs> first of all,
1: the gods made me do it. Right.
0: Secondly, what? Secondly. Um, Luigi at at uh, the lasagna shop made me do it. Oh, that is what we call an ethnic slur. <laughs> Why should the lasagna guy be named Luigi? <laughs> it's too much Mario Kart. That's to play. okay, right? Right.
1: And then the third reason is what? <laughs> um, the rhetoric made me. Somebody, do it. somebody
0: persuaded me.
1: Yeah, one of your boys said, "Hey, Dad, yeah. leave out the lasagna." Exactly. And then you just couldn't control yourself. Must leave out lasagna, right? Or love? And then the love of lasagna. The for- yeah. The fourth reason, you saw it and you thought. I love that lasagna, yeah. And I want
0: to let it breathe. I'm gonna leave it here. Its bouquet can fill the kitchen, something like that. Yeah. No, those wouldn't fly. No, no, it wouldn't fly at all.
1: No, and I couldn't do it either. For one of my many misdeeds, no. right? Something yeah. that I've done wrong. I, I can't use this fourfold schema. So, what's it worth?
0: I think Gorgias would say nothing. Hmm. Well, look at the way he ends this. Yeah,
1: it's a display of rhetoric, right? right? It's a beautiful display of rhetoric. You're going to read section 21.
0: Can you read that for us, please? Yeah, well,
1: I just want to state again. I want to stipulate for the listeners. I translated this in the year 2000. That was 21 years ago. Now, I knew some Greek, right? I was almost done with graduate school. I was done. I hadn't defended my dissertation, but I didn't really know much Greek. And so it's a it's an awkward, stilted kind of translation. Not very happy with it. Okay. But- Anyway, here we go.
0: But close to the Greek. I think close to the Greek. Yes. Yes.
1: I, I was able in a few instances to capture some of the antitheses Yes, for sure. Yeah. All right. So section 21, I have removed by my speech the disgrace of the woman. I have accomplished in good order what I purposed in the beginning of my speech. I attempted to refute the injustice of her reproach and the ignorance of public opinion. I have wished to write this both as an encomium of Helen, here we go, and as my little
0: joke and whoop he pulls the rug out from under exactly yeah
1: so the greek here is actually pretty nice it's uh it's just one large sentence and it goes like this aphelon hon en men the pygneon
0: that's the joke that's the joke pygneon, pygneon. my little trifle my little right? plaything.
1: Yeah, yeah something a kid plays around with right. right it's a i don't know paddle ball and that's my little paddle ball i don't know something like that
0: right it's great I know, you know looking at the greek in here and hearing you read it it's very clear it is it's, it's very straightforward it is not difficult this greek. is not thucydides no 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 yeah
1: it's it's quite straightforward wow yeah and he
0: says at the end hey it's all
1: a joke. It's all a joke. And nobody knows really what to do with this. And frankly, uh, we like to say on this podcast, the purpose or the, sorry, the job of a scholar is to see what isn't there. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and to spill barrels of ink on relatively minor points. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of ink has been spilled on this, honestly.
0: It's a, It's been neglected. Well,
1: I, I think the, per, yeah, I think the perception is there's not a lot here. Hmm right? It's a pygneon after all. We're not supposed to take these four reasons seriously.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, I'm trying to imagine him giving this as a as an oral display, right? And he's already got their money. Mm-hmm. Right? And then he uh, he, uh, he kind of insults them at the end by yes. saying, my, this is my little joke.
1: But listen to the ordering of these Greek words at the end, something you alluded to so nicely. Ton logon helenes, my speech about Helen, men enkomion is a defense, emonde, and then the very last, last word is Bagneon. neon. It's, <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. It's kind of. It's almost the the um, the inverse of we talked. What we talked about with the Iliad with Mainin or the Odyssey with Andra. Exactly. The first word. Right. Setting up the rest. It, right. Here, the last word undercuts everything.
1: It's also kind of uh, similar to when you might make a a speech in defense of yourself or you might attack someone. Right. A common trope in uh, television comedies. I was just seeing this the other night in the Dick Van Dyke show a long time ago. Oh, I love that show. yeah, yeah, yeah. and they they were going to play a practical joke on one of the characters, and the practical joke was, treat the person really mean in some way. So they spent a lot of time, okay, you know, we'll we'll treat them really mean to achieve this desired end. And then at the end, you say,
0: "Ah, it's a joke. <laughs> And it falls really flat. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine it would fall pretty flat. To to me, at least, right? Because how do you
1: justify all that cruelty just by saying,
0: Uh, you know, isn't it funny? Yeah. No. Not really. So, yeah, I, I, I have to wonder how this went over. So, Jeff, what about
1: Helen in the 20th century and Isaac Asimov? And Isaac Asimov. Yes. There's an
0: interesting note here, isn't there? I am not aware of this note. Oh. Do, you have, do, you have, do you have this note? I don't, okay. I don't, I don't well, have Okay, I, I
1: dug around online. Okay. You all, listeners, you can do your digging if you'd like to. We did the digging for you. But uh, the poet Marlowe, 1592, his play, The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus. He says, quote, Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt
0: the topless towers of Ilium? So this is, uh, wait, we're talking about Marlowe or Asimov we're, here. Asimov we're getting to Asimov. We're getting we to Asimov. Let's start right. with
1: Marlowe. Okay. Everything's got a history, Winkle. Let's not get... Uh, okay. All
0: right. Well, you jumped to the 20th century and I thought we're I jumped back. 16th, <laughs> 20. I'm all over the place. But, so it's from Marl that we get this this the very notion. this very famous line that Helen had the face that launched a thousand ships. Yes, yes.
1: And someone apparently has added up all of the ships that appear in Iliad book 2, mm-hmm. the so-called catalog of ships. Yeah. And uh, how many are
0: there? That apparently there's one thousand one hundred eighty six ships. That's right. So Helen, more than a thousand ships. Yeah,
1: Helen's face. You know, one look at her face. One thousand one hundred eighty six ships launched. But we can round down conveniently to one thousand. Okay, that makes right? sense. Yeah. So if it uh, if Helen's face can launch a thousand ships, how much energy, how much power does it take to launch one ship? <laughs>
0: And this is where Asimov comes in? This is where Asimov comes in. So that would be uh, one millihelen. One millihelen. Would be enough beauty to launch one ship. That's correct. Okay. Two millihelens
1: launches two ships, ships. so on and so forth. It's proportional. Okay. So there was a a novelist named Robertson Davies. Actually, one of my favorites.
0: Really? Love Robertson Davies. I don't know anything about him. Canadian novelist, Brilliant.
1: Canadian and brilliant, yeah, <laughs> like Ross King,
0: like Ross King, yeah. exactly, right. Okay, yeah. so
1: in night, tell me one of his novels you like.
0: Uh, the uh, What's Bred in the Bone, one of my mm. favorite books of all time.
1: Oh, I'll yes. have to read it. Perhaps. Yep, it's not a horror movie it's, book, is it's it? It's not. It's not. Nope. Okay, a horror movie book. In, <laughs> uh, in a 1981 novel called The Rebel Angels, he says that this system, I'm quoting here, was invented by a Cambridge mathematician, W. A. H. Rushton. And Asimov, finally Asimov, in his 1992 collection of jokes and limericks, Asimov claims to have invented the term in the 1940s as a grad student. Mm, he says right. that it's a Helen, right? And then in 1958, another individual, R.C. Winton, wrote a letter to the new scientist, and he says, the Millihelen should be the amount of beauty required to launch one ship. So that's how much it takes to launch one ship as a Millihelen. But the system goes on, right?
0: Yeah. Can so- Share some of that. So you can also extend this um, by giving it a negative value.
1: Okay. What's a negative and value? So a
0: negative one millihelen would be the amount of ugliness required to sink a battleship.
1: <laughs> hold, hold on now. You can, you can both beach a ship, right?
0: You can beach a ship. Okay. Yeah. But sink a battleship with just one negative millihelen unit.
1: Okay. Yeah. I, and then a terra helen, what would that do? A
0: terra... I, I, this is sounding really sexist. Are we, are we going down a wrong path here?
1: Only if one assumes that only women are beautiful. Okay,
0: all right. Um, maybe you, you just you just re- uncovered my own bias. I don't
1: know. All right, okay. I, I think men can be beautiful too. Okay. Yeah. But the Iliad is written about feminine beauty. That's true. Although, I mean, you brought up the question, probably just as a joke more than anything, but yes. Homer does describe masculine beauty as well, but it wasn't one of those men whose face... Launched a 1,000 ships. That's true.
0: Okay. So what's a terra helen? A terra helen is uh, the ability to launch the equivalent of one quadrillion Greek warships and make serious inroads on the welfare of the galaxy. (laughs) Quadrillion. Okay. So that's huge. That's a lot of ships. All
1: right. So, listener, you can read up on this if you want to, um, if you want to do some some Helen-based beauty arithmetic.
0: I don't think we're going to continue, but it goes on. It does go on. (laughs) It does go on. I'm
1: like, I'm just glad when I ease my pickup truck out of the driveway, and it goes down the road relatively successfully. That, that's all you need to be That's happy. all I need. Right. So we
0: don't need to launch ships in no. one direction or the other.
1: I don't need the ashtray. I don't need the paddle ball. I don't need the chair. That's all I need. <laughs> all well, you- Jeff, I don't suppose we have time to talk about different kinds of beauty as presented in the classical world.
0: I would love to, but it's such a huge subject. We
1: were also thinking about a little Clive Bell. Clive Bell. And some aesthetics. Yes. That's a name uh, worth mentioning, maybe some Kant. Why it is that uh, Homer describes women in different ways in terms of their beauty. Yeah. It's got to be a topic or topics for another episode. Right.
0: Certainly germane to what we're doing here today. We just don't have the time. Mm. Yep.
1: So we got to get out of here, don't we? We do.
0: Yep. We got to get out of our uh, our new digs uh, here at Vomitorium West, maybe to be renamed at some point. Just go-
1: simply Vomitorium. Just Vomitorium. Yeah. All right.
0: Yep. But uh, thanks, as always, to uh, our intrepid engineer, Mishka and for the magic of making us sound and soon look a lot better right. than we actually do, right? I
1: hope she's skilled in Photoshop or whatever it is that-
0: <laughs> Right, I'm thinking a gauzy soft filter. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> do you remember, did you ever watch Moonlighting? Remember Moonlighting of Bruce Willis? I and...
1: don't think I ever watched okay. it. I was very young. I, I know who's in it, Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis. Yes,
0: every time Sybil Shepherd was on screen, it was like this gauzy soft filter. They That's what I imagine- Like a for halo. My, for myself. And then you in kind of the, the 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 stark colors that Bruce Willis was- So
1: I'm Bruce and you're Sybil, well, is that, what you're saying. I didn't, I didn't think this through. Moving on. <laughs>
0: Who else do we have to thank?
1: Uh, We need to thank Ken Tamplin, who uh, gives us the bumper music around the ads and also wrote and produced the wonderful screaming guitar music that Scott Van Zandt provides as our intro and outro music. Excellent. excellent. You got to check out these guys' work online if you like the the genre of rock.
0: Yes. And before we go, Dave, tell us a little bit about the Moss Method. Well,
1: thanks, Jeff. You all heard my translation from two thousand. You know, you can see that becoming skilled in Greek, it takes a long time, and it doesn't matter if you start out kind of clunky, as I obviously did, you can eventually develop significant skill. And I want to help you in that process. I want you to to check out mossmethod.com, where I can take you from neophyte to erudite. Module one, it's $299. It starts you out with the first lesson. There are 40 total, video instruction, homework assignments, quizzes, exams, it's uh, definitely worth taking a look at, mossmethod.com.
0: Excellent. Check it out. And uh, next week. Yeah. What are we
1: looking at for next week, Jeff? Uh, to be determined. To be determined. Okay. Yep. So you have done some things, put some things together, but we want to deliver a really high quality product. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to kind of wait and see a little
0: bit. Yep. So we have stuff, lots of exciting stuff planned, but uh, we're not ready to announce it quite yet. All right, Jeff, you got the gustatory parting shot to take us out. I do. This comes from the, the great golfer, Chichi Chi Rodriguez, All right. who doing, during an interview once said, come on, red meat's not bad for you. Blue green meat, that's bad for you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. See ya.